The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Warrior Cops versus Responsible Policing. Tyree Nichols died on January 10th, three days after being arrested, unarmed, while stopped at a traffic light in Memphis. Footage of the arrest showed five police officers repeatedly punching and kicking Nichols in the head and beating him with a baton, even after he had been subdued. Investigations of Nichols' death are ongoing, but the officers have been fired from their jobs and charged with second-degree murder. U.S. police officers shoot and kill more than 1,000 people annually. According to a Washington Post study, half of these people are white. But blacks are shot at more frequently, even though they represent just 14% of the population, and are killed at more than twice the rate of whites. The same is true of Hispanic Americans and Latinos. This is a collision of the rawest and most brutal sort, and it raises myriad questions about safe streets and public safety, crime, racism, and institutional violence, as well as police training and the increased militarization of U.S. police forces. I want to try something new today and bring on two different guests. First, I'll talk to Radley Balco, a journalist and the author of The Rise of the Warrior Cop. Then we'll switch gears and I'll speak with Lawrence Ralph, an anthropology professor at Princeton University and the director of the Center on Transnational Policing. Let's start with Radley. Greetings, Radley. Hi, good to be here. Thank you for joining us. So Tyree Nichols' death is the latest in a long line of tragic police encounters with the public. Let's explore some of that context before we examine what happened in Memphis. You know, there was Rodney King in L.A. in 1991, Amadou Diallo in New York in 1999, Sean Bell in New York in 2006, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, Freddie Gray in Baltimore in 2015, Philandro Castile in St. Paul in 2016, and George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020, and many, many more. What does that timeline say to you, Radley, when, when you think about it in that context? Well, it says to me that we're continuing to make a lot of the same mistakes. You know, I think that we are an inherently violent country. We're a country that has a lot of guns. So inevitably, there are going to be encounters, dangerous encounters between police and armed and dangerous people in the community. So I feel like we have to sort of accept that there are going to be some violent outcomes. However, we should do what we can to minimize them. We should do what we can to ensure that police are using tactics that keep communities safe while prioritizing constitutional rights. And I think I mean, we could go back even before Rodney King, go back to kind of the early days of U.S. policing, but certainly since, say, the civil rights movement, there has been this kind of false choice presented that you can either have constitutional rights or you can have safe communities, but you can't have both. 
And I think there's quite a bit of convincing data that says that's just not true. That is a false choice. That, in fact, when police serve their communities in a way that is consistent with the Constitution, that's consistent with the model of protect and serve as opposed to, say, you know, us versus them, those communities are safer because there's more trust. And police can't solve crimes without cooperation and communication with the neighborhoods and the communities they're serving. And when there's no trust, there's no communication. People stop calling the police, they stop calling 911, they stop cooperating. And I don't think those two things are coincidental. The other thing I think going on here, you know, you raise this issue that violence is inevitable and we're always trying to strike a balance between a necessary use of force to stop crimes and people's constitutional rights and people's civil rights. But we're actually, I also think, talking today about something that's an even an order of magnitude larger than that, which is the militarization of U.S. police forces and what that's done to the nature of the encounters the police have with communities and the kind of violence that can occur. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that Do you have a kind of 35,000-foot view of how we should think about the militarization of the U.S. police? Yeah, so there's a tradition in this country, and I think a a very justifiable one, of keeping the military out of domestic policing. I mean, it goes back to the founding when the uh, founders saw what happens when you ask soldiers to do sort of routine day-to-day policing. In that case, it was, you know, British soldiers enforcing tax and import laws, and it led to a lot of unnecessary violence and anger and resentment. And so there's always been this sort of concept or general kind of principle that we don't want the military to be doing domestic day-to-day policing. And it makes sense, right? A soldier's job is to kill people and break things and to annihilate a foreign enemy. A police officer's job is to protect and serve, you know, that they're supposed to serve a community, not see a community as the enemy. And So while we've done a good job of keeping the military out of domestic policing, what we haven't done a good job with and what we've actively encouraged through various public policies over the last generation or two, is we turned our cops into soldiers. We've armed them like police. We've trained them like police. We have dressed them like police. We've encouraged them to use sort of militaristic martial rhetoric. And then we told them they're fighting a war, whether it's a war on drugs or a war on crime or, you know, a war on terrorism. Pick your war. And so Let's, let's slow down on that for a minute. How did that come to be, that we decided it was a good idea to militarize the U.S. police? I think politicians decided that the way you show you're tough on something is you declare war on it. And, you know, we've had war on all sorts of ambiguous concepts and ideas from poverty to cancer to drugs to terrorism to crime in general. In many of those cases, it is strictly rhetorical. But we saw starting really during the Nixon administration is to take that metaphor and make it quite literal by giving police new powers, for example, the power to conduct no-knock raids, basically to get prior permission from a judge to kick down a door and raid a home, somebody suspected of drug crimes. We really see it then ramped up during the Reagan administration, where Reagan starts making surplus military equipment from the Pentagon available to police departments across the country. On a deeper level, kind of it reveals this idea, again, that police and soldiers are interchangeable, that they're similar jobs with similar skill sets. And they they aren't. They're they're very different jobs with very different skill sets. But this idea that an MRAP, which is an armored truck that was built to resist landmines on convoys in Iraq and Afghanistan, that we're going to give those hundreds of those to police departments across the country because we're not using them anymore. What kind of message does that send to the communities where these are driving around in? It's making them feel like they're occupied, not that they're democracies or free societies. I think that this program really reveals kind of just how short-sighted 
and how really lazy politicians are when they think about policing. There is just this knee-jerk reaction to think more force, more aggression, more confrontation. That's how you fight crime. And, you know, all the data we have show that that just isn't true. And it is indeed a program, right? Talk a little bit about the 1033 program and the Defense Department's role in all of this. So, yeah, so the Reagan administration does this kind of on an informal basis. But then in the late 90s, Congress passes the 1033 program, which formalizes this in federal law, this giving away of surplus equipment. And for the vast majority of the 1033 program's existence, there's never been any effort to sort of gauge whether a particular piece of equipment is appropriate for domestic policing. So literally millions of pieces of military equipment have been transferred to local police. This is stuff that was designed for use on a battlefield. So you've got that going on. And then after the attacks of September 11th, you get a whole new source of militarization, which is the Department of Homeland Security, which starts giving out grants to police departments across the country to buy new gear. So this isn't surplus anymore. Now you get this cottage industry that sprung up to cash these DHS grants in exchange for new armored personnel carriers and big guns and bayonets and helicopters and everything else. And so now you've created this industry that thrives on these grants. That industry, of course, is going to lobby to continue this program indefinitely. And the DHS program eventually dwarfs the 1033 program. And now we're kind of at the point of of no return. The 1033 program's legacy is really that it kind of ushered us into this age of militarization by providing all this gear. And I mean, there there are two sides to police militarization. One is the stuff, right? The gear, the camouflage pants and jackets that they get, which, you know, there's really no reason to wear camouflage if you're a police officer in the United States, you know, unless you're patrolling a forest, I guess, and you want to remain hidden, but that's pretty rare. But it makes you look and think like a soldier. It makes you think you are a soldier. And for the people you're supposed to be serving, you know, you look like a soldier. So it looks to them like you're not a a peace officer who's there to protect them. It's you're an occupying force. It's there to intimidate them. And that is the other side of police militarization. It's the mindset that comes with all of this, this us versus them kind of battlefield mentality. One common phrase you'll hear a lot in policing today is whatever I have to do to get home at night. You know, and that's the mentality of a soldier, right? That's not the mentality of somebody who's supposed to be a part of and a contributor to and, you know, a resident of the communities that they serve. I still have a strong memory of Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 when armored personnel carriers rolled down the middle of the street in response to the protests about Michael Brown's death. And I think that that moment, it was such a revelation, I think, for a lot of Americans to see the degree to which militarization had really come into these local police forces. Do you see that as a seminal moment, or was I just late to the awareness game? I think it was a seminal moment in that it brought it to much wider public attention. But a couple things about Ferguson that I think made it more important than other protests and other events like that. First is, you know, that initial image when you had people protesting Michael Brown's death peacefully on that very first night, and the police responded with full riot gear, and oh, there's a famous photo of a, literally a sniper on top of a truck pointing his gun at the protesters. And one reaction that I remember, people who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan were looking at these photos and looking at these cops, and they were saying, you know what, these guys are better equipped than we were when we were in Iraq and Afghanistan. And moreover, a lot of them were objecting to the term police militarization, not because they didn't think it was a problem, but because they said, you know what, in the military... We have clear rules of engagement, which a lot of police departments don't have in the U.S. 
the first thing you're taught in the military is that you don't point your gun at anything you don't intend to destroy. And these officers were pointing their guns at unarmed peaceful protesters. I mean, military people were angry by what they saw, which I thought was a pretty telling moment. That offers a nice segue because the other thing that occurs to me is that militarization isn't just about hardware. It's also about tactics and tactical training. In Memphis, Tyree Nichols was dragged out of his car, chased down, and then beaten by a special tactical unit known as Scorpion. Do you see these as as a different issue than heavy weaponry or as a related issue? And what is the role for these special tactical units in policing? You know, I think these are both different and related. I think they're different in the sense that the Scorpion units were not SWAT teams. They didn't get specialized tactical training. I think they had a three-day course that included like a PowerPoint presentation and some time on the shooting range and training on how to take a suspect down. So look, I think SWAT teams are overused, but I also think that if you're going to use dynamic entry, if you're going to kick somebody's door down, it's much better to have a well-trained full-time SWAT team who knows how to do that in a way that minimizes the risk than to have just five random cops kicking down the door. What happened in Memphis, by all accounts, I mean, is what happens a lot of times when crime goes up. You know, homicides were soaring in Memphis in the early part of the pandemic. Politicians had to show that they cared and that they were going to do something about crime. And so they did what they often do, which is they fell back to this false choice of, well, we can have safety or constitutional rights. And because safety is at issue right now, we're going to have to create these teams that are going to be aggressive. They're going to saturate these hotspot areas. And they're just going to kick ass and take names, basically. You know, I don't know if the politicians would actually put it in those terms, but that's certainly the way these units get introduced. In this case, these officers had very little experience, the ones who killed Tyree Nichols. They were all, I think the most had maybe five or six years in the department. A couple had just been hired recently, I think 2020 maybe. Yeah, they had a lot of them had very little sort of street experience relative to other officers. Right. And, you know, part of that is that the department was short on staff. And so you have to fill out these units that the mayor promised. And so you fill them out the best you can. But, you know, the problem is you create these units of officers and you give them less supervision, more authority, a sort of vague mandate to just suppress crime. And so, you know, from their perspective, their job is to just kind of go out and do what they have to do. Nobody's going to be looking over their shoulder because the idea is to fight crime. Fighting crime takes priority over procedures and rights and the respect of the community. And so, you, you know, before Tyree Nichols, I mean, there were lots of reports of these units pulling people over traffic stops, screaming at them, pointing their guns at them, swearing at them, threatening them. Now, I will say it's true that crime went down in Memphis after they created these units. But crime also went down in every other large city in the country in 2022 after a spike in 2020 and 2021. So it's not clear at all that these units had anything to do with that. I think more generally, we were coming out of the pandemic and a lot of the upheaval and economic distress, social isolation. Exactly. All of that. So again, I think it's similar to the use of SWAT teams. It's similar to our general approach to policing when crime goes up, which is it's this kind of lazy thinking that we get from politicians that the only way to fight crime is to be more aggressive and to be more proactive and to kind of take it to these communities. And one thing that always gives a game away is when politicians are defending these units, they don't necessarily defend them by saying crime went down in this particular neighborhood. The first thing they always talk about is how many arrests they made or how many guns they confiscated. And you cannot arrest your way out of a crime wave. It just doesn't work. When you measure success, a police officer's success by how many arrests you make, you encourage them to do what we see in the Tyree Nichols video, which is just pull people over in random areas on hunches more than anything else 
harassed them, intimidated them into letting you search their car. And maybe four or five or six of them are innocent, but you're going to get two or three or four that have something in the car that you can arrest them for. And then that looks good because you've made these arrests. And, you know, you really haven't made the community safer. And you've probably undermined a lot of trust in the community and respect for the police. And that's going to make it more difficult to do your job and you have actual murders to solve because the people you're supposed to be protecting are going to be afraid of you. And I just point out, I mean, there's polling showing now that Black Americans are more fearful of the police than they are of being a victim of crime. And that's really damning and really telling about where we are right now. It is extremely telling. And, and I, I've wondered, is are there regional and local patterns that are equally telling in all of this? Is the militarization of police a national phenomenon or is it, are there sort of regional characteristics to it? It's pretty national at this point. And, you know, the thing is, again, I think SWAT teams are overused. I think if you're going to have them, they need to be well-trained and full-time. What we see in most parts of the country outside of relatively large-sized cities is that the SWAT teams are part-time, and they tend to be officers who are doing other things during the day and are on the SWAT team and on the weekends, and they don't get the right amount of training. And they're probably on the SWAT team because of the adrenaline rush and because it's frankly, you know, a thrill to kind of kick down doors. I'm speaking very generally here, but I mean, this is a common problem. But, you know, I don't think we pay enough attention to the larger kind of cultural issues in policing right now, particularly with a lot of these units have patches or challenge coins or T-shirts that they issue with like their motto or their logo on it. And typically the logo is something with like a skull and crossbones or a grim reaper, some sort of depiction of death. I mean, this unit itself is called Scorpion, which... You don't call one of these units Scorpion unless your goal is to instill fear in the community. And when you do call it Scorpion, the kind of officer you're going to attract is the kind of officer who wants to be feared. That is not a name you give to a unit that you want to serve the community. It's a, a name you give to a unit that you want to attack the community. But we've seen this over and over again. There's a study, BuzzFeed published a study with an interest group about four or five years ago that looked at social media posts by police. And I don't remember what the exact figures are, but a disturbingly high percentage of the departments they looked at, the officers in those departments had posted something on social media that was either racist, sexist, or sort of glorified police violence in some way. And it was a disturbingly high percentage. And I think policing culture has become very isolated, it's become very defensive, and it's become very unaccountable, in part, I think, because of the role of police unions. Well, the role of police unions, I want to get into that as well. But let's take a break, and then we'll be right back. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We're back with Radley Belko, author of The Rise of the Warrior Cop. Radley, we were just talking about police culture and how broad-based some of these problems have become. I wanted to ask you, in that context... Are cops like the five who've been charged with manslaughter in Memphis outliers, in your mind, or are they representative? In other words, how deep and pernicious is this problem? I mean, I think they're outliers in the sense that 
you know, what we saw in those videos was, I mean, I was shocked by them and it takes a lot to shock me these days. And I think the thing that shocked me about them is, you know, we've seen a lot of other videos where a police officer or multiple officers will get sort of caught up in the moment and the adrenaline, they'll be angry at somebody and they'll, you know, unleash some nasty and brutal violence on someone. The thing about the Tyree Nichols video that really kind of chilled me is that it's the extended kind of beating that you see. I mean, these officers, at one point, one officer stops to tie his shoes and then goes back to beating him. Another point, an officer helps another officer find his glasses. They stop to catch their breath, you know, and it goes on for, I think, five or six, seven minutes in total. So it's the extent, I mean, just the level of inhumanity that they showed him, their inability to sort of see him as a human being, that really, I, th I found pretty shocking. But yeah, I will say it's not particularly unusual. I mean, I'm not going to say it's every police officer is like that, or even a lot of them are. But we have seen lots of other incidents like that. They just weren't on video. But is, this, is that a small percentage of the police force, or is it broader than that? Well, I think it's a small percentage of the overall police force. But here's the problem. I mean, the problem is that these are supposed to be the elite units, right? These are supposed to be the best of the best. I've written a lot about recruiting videos that police departments send out to high schools and colleges across the country. A lot of these recruiting videos are blaring guitars to police officers, kicking down doors, sticking dogs on people, shooting, subduing a suspect. They're all about attacking and aggression and testosterone. And, Action. Right. And there's very little about helping people and serving and giving back to your community. They're emphasizing all the wrong things about policing, so they're attracting all the wrong people. So then you take a population of people who go into policing for those reasons, and you select the ones who are most attracted to the idea of working for a unit called Scorpion, and who are attracted to the idea of working with less supervision, more oversight, and a sort of generalized mandate to do whatever you have to do to suppress crime. And so I think what you get with these units a lot of times is just a super concentration of the worst problems in policing into one small unit. And unfortunately, those units, again, are given sort of the most leeway to do damage on these communities. You mentioned earlier the role that unions play in all of this. You know, as I understand it, union rules and the legal strategy that accompanies them when cops get accused of malfeasance or worse is that they tend to protect bad cops often to the consternation of good cops who feel smeared by bad cops. Should unions let go of knee-jerk defenses of cops? And what other steps could they take to really play a more active role in suppressing the kind of violence that is concerning people? You know, I'm not sure they can. You know, the purpose of a union is to protect its members. And if you start saying we're not going to protect officers who we think are the wrong kind of police officer, it gets very difficult. I'm, I'm not defending the fact that they defend bad officers here. But yeah, one thing that is telling is that I've written about lots of cases over the years where a police officer was punished or retaliated against for giving up other officers, for reporting misconduct or abuse by other officers. In those cases, the union's much less likely to support them and protect them. Unions also tend to reinforce existing power structures. So, so where do we go from here? You know, what, what do you think are the most productive measures that community should take to address escalating police violence and militarization? So I think the most important thing we can do right now is do what we can to shrink policing's footprint. I'm not an abolitionist. I do think we need police, but I think we ask them to do way too much. I think we ask them to do things that we don't train them for and that very broadly speaking, and again, this is a generalization, but that people who go into policing may not have the temperament for. 
So the idea that, you know, in a lot of cities, police are our first responders to people who are having a mental health crisis is absolutely absurd to me. And this is something that's just bugged the hell out of me since I've started covering this issue, which is that, you know, some kid expresses thoughts of hurting himself. And so his parents called the police. And so the police and the SWAT team. And now this kid who is a little mentally unstable might be in the midst of a crisis. Now he's the focus of the entire neighborhood because there's a SWAT team out on the lawn and there are, you know, sirens. And it's the absolute worst way you can respond to one of these situations. And yet that is the default response still in, in a lot of cities in this country. And we ask the police to be the first to respond to the homeless, right? It's the police who have to try to figure out whether there's an available shelter for a homeless person. A lot of cities, that's the case. You know, there's no evidence that putting police in schools makes schools safer. There is a lot of evidence that they end up arresting kids who wouldn't have otherwise been arrested. I think we can get police out of all those things. We can get police out of traffic enforcement. Police officers are told from early on in the academy, they're shown these horrific videos of police officers getting ambushed during a traffic stop and shot and killed. And, you know, I'm not going to say that that doesn't happen. It does happen probably five or six times a year out of, you know, six or 700,000 at least traffic stops a year. So the odds of that happening to a given police officer are, are vanishingly rare, yet it's kind of drummed into them that this could happen to them at any time at any traffic stop. On the flip side of that, Black and Latino people see videos like the one from Memphis, and they see lots of other videos. And so they have their own experiences of being racially profiled or police who are sort of rude or aggressive with them during a stop. And so you have this incredibly fraught situation, all to enforce a law against broken turn signals or unregistered plates or speeding or putting a turn signal at the wrong time. All this stuff could be enforced in other less confrontational, less fraught ways. And I think, you know, that would go a long way toward alleviating some of the stress between the police and these communities, but also free up a lot of police resources to do things like solving violent crimes. In cities where we've seen consistently high rates of violent crime, we've also seen consistently high rates of police abuse and police corruption. We also see very low rates of police solving crimes in those communities, solving murders, solving rapes. Memphis has a massive backlog of untested rape kits, but yet they have the money to start these sort of elite units and pay these officers more to be part of these units. Some federal legislators have suggested creating a national database to track bad cops so they can't just be shuffled to another precinct and to ensure that they're excised from the force. What do you think of tools that allow greater transparency for average citizens to be able to have a visible kind of window onto police behavior? I think it's a great idea. I wrote about the last two police reform bills we had. I think the Democrats' bill was much stronger, but I think they were both largely sort of symbolic. So if I remember correctly, the Republicans wanted to sort of fund a study to look in the possibility of a database of bad cops. The Democrats wanted to actually create a database, but they didn't want it to be publicly accessible. And, you know, if you're going to have a database of bad police officers, there needs to be a reason that you have it in the first place, right? So either officers who are in that database should be ineligible to become police officers, or departments who hire somebody who's in that database need to be held accountable in some way if those officers go on to commit more misconduct. Either that means it becomes easier to sue a police agency or a city for hiring one of those officers, or, you know, this database is open to the public. So one of these officers is hired, local media will be able to access that information and can let people know that this is how they're choosing to spend taxpayer money. You've analyzed and covered all of this so extensively. And I wondered, I always like to ask guests what they've learned 
around the topic that we're discussing. Is there anything that's new for you looking at the death of Tyree Nichols? I mean, I think the main thing for me was just the utter depravity that you see in that video. You know, the fact that these officers, you know, they didn't see a human being on the other end of that. You know, a lot of times officers will rough up a guy like this because they've arrested him before. They know of like people he's harmed or hurt. And so there's this, you know, instinct to kind of punish him for transgressions that have nothing to do with why they ran into him that night. There's none of that with him. There's no evidence that he had done anything wrong. The Memphis police chief even said there's no evidence that he was actually driving recklessly, which is the reason why they pulled him over in the first place. You know, they just didn't see him as a human being. And it's really shocking and kind of hard to grasp how someone could do that to somebody else. And, you know, we've seen a lot of psychiatric studies over the years on how corrupting giving someone unlimited power over other people can be and can make us sort of see the people we have power over as something less than human. And that's really on display in this video. And I've I've never seen it quite so starkly. And it's hard to watch. And on that sad note, I'd like to thank you, Radley, for joining us today. You can find Radley's newsletter, The Watch, on Substack, and his book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, wherever books are sold. Thanks again, Radley. Thanks for having me on. We'll take another quick break. When we return, we'll continue to talk about policing, but in an international context, with Lawrence Ralph, director of the Center on Transnational Policing at Princeton University. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm back with Lawrence Ralph. He's an anthropology professor at Princeton and the director of the Center on Transnational Policing there. Lawrence, it's great to have you here, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Lawrence, I wish we were meeting under different circumstances today. In some ways, is this a particularly American phenomenon, militarization, tactical units, and these the types of violent encounters we're seeing between the police and some victims? Well, there's definitely American aspects to it, particularly when we think about just the prevalence of guns in our society and the way in which people can get access to guns in a relatively easy fashion. If you think about countries who we would compare ourselves to in terms of democratization and things like this, countries in Europe, there's not just the same level of guns on the streets. And so what that does, particularly when it comes to policing, is to make the police believe that they need to have more guns and better guns and more access to guns than the people who they imagine are the dangerous ones, which then creates a cycle where there's just more guns circulating in society. So you would pin this in part just simply to gun proliferation? That is a very American phenomenon in that context, isn't it? Right. I think that's a big part of the story. Again, when you compare it to countries where we say, oh, what's the safest country in the world, right? Or countries where you have the least incidents of police violence and things like that. 
you find that, coincidentally, those countries do not have the same level of guns proliferating in society. Germany and France, maybe we could talk about both of those countries. They do have heavily armored police forces that they use for certain kinds of enforcement, if I'm, maybe I'm wrong on that, but that was my understanding. They do, and those countries are adopting a lot of the same tactics as the U.S. as well, and seeing increases in incidents of police violence, and, you know, there were the French riots in the not-too-distant past, and they have different histories in terms of the populations who are the subject of assault, but they are using some of the same tactics. And so in France, for example, a lot of it has to do with migrant populations, populations of Algerians, Malians, who have come to the country and are either first or second generation. And kind of in response to dealing with the immigrant problem, some of the same things are happening where you have these task force that are formed just to deal with that issue. And you have a disproportionate amount of people from that background being subject to police violence and being harassed, stopped and frisked and things like this. Because they're, quote unquote, the other. Exactly. Not necessarily because they're a criminal threat, but just they're a population of people deemed as outsiders and the other. And then the police become this wedge to keep them in place. Exactly. Exactly. So they're citizens, but not the ideal French citizen from the country's perspective. There's anthropologist Didier Fassan who writes about this in a book called Enforcing Order. And when he's talking about the immigrant populations of color, he talks about how in French society, they're often considered, quote unquote, kind of bastards of the nation in the sense that they belong, but they don't quite belong in the naturalized way. And it affects the way that they're pleased in the communities in which they live. And is there a similar dynamic in Germany and in the UK? There is a similar dynamic in that there's a similar kind of rhetoric of who belongs and who doesn't belong. And in the UK, of course, we had Brexit as part of this kind of resurgent nationalism. We see similar things in Germany. And so I think part of the issue is we cannot disentangle the issue of policing from the wider political context and act as if, oh, the police are just a separate entity who are just enforcing the law, whereas politics is a different animal. Well, they're all interrelated and connected. And so oftentimes you have new policing tactics that are adapted to deal with the political climate and legislation justifies expenditures for policing, which also impacts just the physical reality of police, how many are on the streets, what they are equipped with when they're on the streets, what kind of policing that they're engaged in. You know, you said such an interesting thing earlier about some of these other countries have actually absorbed and adopted U.S. policing tactics and a militarized approach to policing. However, they don't seem to be having the same kind of violent encounters. Are they managing those police units in a different way than we do in the United States? No, I think increasingly they are having this similar kind of encounters, but it's just not at the same scale or it's not publicized in the same way. But I think the way that the police are operating is very similar and the solutions to crime are presumed to be very similar in terms of 
locking people up, getting people off the streets, the kind of ideologies that led to mass incarceration in the U.S. And what was the trigger for those countries adopting those strategies, given that we've wrestled with them so heavily here in the U.S.? It's had momentum of its own. I think that's increased since the 1990s. You know, we've had a string of increasingly, I think, distressing and violent encounters between the police and primarily, I think, the most troubling ones are with people of color. And you can chart that, say, from Rodney King all the way to George Floyd and now with Tyree Nichols. Are other Western democracies not seeing the problematic pieces of this and sort of entranced by the I don't know, the glamorous display of power and force? Well, I think one of the biggest issues is that it's politically viable to be tough on crime. And so that... Everywhere. Everywhere, right. In the context of democracy, in the context of elected officials being elected, keeping themselves in office, and even moving to kind of higher pastures within the political landscape, right? And so that is not just rhetoric, but it also comes with certain obligations to constituencies, law enforcement constituencies, but it also comes with laws that have a real material impact. There's also a public will because it's, in one sense, it's low-hanging fruit to say, you know, we need to do something about the drug problem or a problem that everyone knows is there. And oftentimes, as a citizenry, we lack the imagination of what else to do. Like, what else can we do? And it's a, it's a blunt force solution to problems that have roots that sometimes are apart from policing entirely and may not be solved by that kind of an approach, right? Exactly. So I think there is now a more, at least in the U.S., a greater public awareness of just the need for an imagination of what else can we do? And people are starting to think through, okay, mental health training needs to be involved. We need to find different solutions. But it is a slow process and it's not clear exactly how it is going to happen because the police don't want to lose their budget, you know? And so they want to incorporate any solution into policing itself where a lot of people who are against the idea of giving more resources to the police want to see those funds diverted to other social service initiatives, right? And so there's even a tension. When people agree on the problem, there's still not an agreement on how we're actually going to get there. You know, in the context of how are we actually going to get there, You've closely examined New Orleans and the use of police force there. And uh, I think until recently, New Orleans had the highest per capita rate of incarceration of any city in the world, I think, not just the United States, but the world. And New Orleans entered into a consent decree with the federal government in 2012 that called for monitoring of its police department. How did that play out? How do you look at New Orleans as a sort of test case of police oversight? Well, I think studying the consent decree was very informative because they basically tried to implement a lot of the current solutions that are being advocated for, especially around the use of force. And so they had community oversight and their use of force hearings in which community members could talk about what they felt, what they saw when they watched these body cam videos that the police might not see. 
They were trying to engage the community on anything from what it looks like when they pull over a citizen and why the interactions might not go in the way they anticipated to outfitting everyone with body cams to thinking about mental health training within the police force to thinking about training for police officers to administer treatment for drug addicts if they find somebody overdosing, right? And so it was an interesting time to see where the pushback was and the possibility of what was working. And part of what we saw was it was hard for the police to get past this idea of us versus them that's very instilled within, I think, police officers since before they joined the force, but definitely when they joined the force, it's reinscribed into them. And frankly, in American society as a whole. Right. Not just the police force, right? We're in a profound us versus them era right now. Right. And so it really influences everything from how you perceive someone, you know, whether they're a threat to you, whether they're in need of help, whether they're engaged in something that they should be locked up for or should warrant drug rehabilitation for. It really affects the way in which the police interact in every situation. And so I think that kind of colored all of the interventions that were taking place. They can look one way idealistically, but when you get into the moment of encounter, into the moment of conflict, there's a lot of area for things to go awry, especially because there's so much police discretion in a moment, right? There's such a difference between what is supposed to happen, but what the police officer in the moment has the latitude to do based on how they feel. So if oversight was more authentically robust and had longer, more lasting staying power, do you think that that would help blunt the force of the cultural us versus them mentality? Or do you feel hopeless about all that? No, I think that would help in the same way that I think it helps that these officers are getting charged in the Tyree Nichols case, right? It helps in that sense. But that's like an extreme version of oversight, right? Where it's, it has to be the case where somebody's dying to get true oversight. It has to be a murder charge for the police to get true oversight. Where if it's just a use of force incident where, like even if Tyree Nichols didn't die or something like that, then what would have been the oversight in that case, right? It's very likely that it would have been internal within the police and it wouldn't have involved court or anything like that. And the union would have sat on it. Exactly, right. I was looking at some of your course descriptions at Princeton, and anytime I do this, it makes me profoundly miss college again. <laughs> but you teach a class at Princeton, Policing and Militarization Today. And in the course description, you say that you and your co-teacher, quote-unquote, aim neither to vindicate nor contest the police's right to use force, whether a particular instance was a violation of law, but instead to contribute to the understanding of force, its forms, justifications, interpretations. Can you talk a bit about that with me and tell me what your goals are for that class? Yeah, I mean, this actually came out of the New Orleans research when we realized that when people are talking about police force, they actually didn't mean the same things. <laughs> like, there's a vast discrepancy in what people think is forceful and what people think is violent. 
that we try to understand in the class and try to unpack it. And a lot of it boils down to safety, like what makes you feel safe and why? And how does that have to do with policing? And why is it like that? You know, the incentive structure for policing is a big part of it. And what counts and what doesn't count is a big part of it. How do you respond to people who say that police militarization and violence are the price of public safety? You know, yes, I'm disturbed by these incidents, but they're rare. And I just want to feel safe when I go out my front door. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the question of what makes us feel safe and why. And I think we need to constantly question that because oftentimes our safety, what we think makes us safe is at the expense of other people who feel profoundly unsafe by what we're pursuing and what we're doing. And so we always have to think about those interrelations and what led to that. I mean, it's shocking to my students that I remember a time where airports weren't hardened and you could just walk through the air. Walk right up to the gate. Right. You could walk right up to the gate. <laughs> no problem. And I remember a time in which schools weren't hardened, right? And like these things happened because of very particular events. It happened because 9-11 happened because of the phenomenon of mass shootings, which drastically changed our perception of what's safety, what it means to feel safe. What's threatening? What's threatening? Who's a threat? Where's the threat coming from? Exactly. So I think that we need to, we always need to constantly think about what is shaping our perception of safety and how might it change? And and are those threats real? Right. And, and why are we perceiving them as threats? Exactly. Right? Because oftentimes, in terms of statistical argument, there are a lot of things that are more likely than a mass shooting or something like that. But we perceive it as something that can always happen and that's always happening, right? What is unusual or instructive to you about Tyree Nichols' death? What, what jumps out to you as a learning moment for someone like yourself who's looked at this so deeply and thought about it for so long? Well, I think we circled around this a lot in this podcast today, but I think what strikes me most is just the idea of why someone wants to be a police officer. When I look at that incident, I don't actually see people preoccupied with safety. I see people who are kind of searching for a thrill, pursuing somebody as a kind of hunt. I see the hunt as a kind of entertainment. And I see police officers congratulating themselves for inflicting violence, taking turns, inflicting violence, bragging about what they've done. It seems like they enjoy themselves. And I think it's a really exaggerated version of the kind of thing that I've encountered when I've interviewed police officers in which a lot of them mention TV shows. A lot of them mention movies as the reason they got into policing. They mention a kind of identity that they wanted to have as a young person and fulfilling that through policing. Some people are then disenchanted when they get there and realize that, oh, that's actually not what they're doing. But some people constantly seek that out and want that. And especially when it comes to these units like the Scorpion unit, or these elite units, you're particularly more likely to get the kind of officer who is in it for the thrill of it. 
And that's what really, really troubled me and jumped out when I saw that Tyree Nichols just uh, kind of unbridled enthusiasm about... They were enjoying it. Yeah. And where does that come from? And, and how can we stop that then becomes the question. I hope we can come back to this together at some point. It's an important discussion. I, I really thank you for joining us today, Lawrence. Thank you. You can find Lawrence Ralph's book, The Tortured Letters, Reckoning with Police Violence, wherever books are sold. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that the culture of policing and an us-versus-them mentality may be so deeply baked into police culture that oversight is only a first step, but not a last step, to providing for better public safety. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vandenbeiler. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.